Hello, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, Two Think Minimum. It's Wednesday, June 3rd, 2020, and I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow. And today we're delighted to have as guests two of the nation's leading experts on antitrust and competition policy, Carl Shapiro and Josh Wright. Carl is professor of the Graduate School at the Haas School of Business and the Department of Economics at UC Berkeley. And he's also the Transamerica Professor of Business Strategy Emeritus at the Haas School of Business. Carl was a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors during 2011-12. And prior to that, he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economics at the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice, a position he also held during 1995-96. Josh Wright is University Professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, where he is also Executive Director of the Global Antitrust Institute and holds a courtesy appointment in the Department of Economics. He was a commissioner at the Federal Trade Commission from 2013 to 2015. Welcome to you both. So we're here to discuss antitrust and competition policy. And during the last few years, antitrust has become a very hot topic, moving from the confines of technical conferences, ABA conferences, economic conferences to the front pages. Why do you think that's happened? Let's start out with Carl. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate being here, being included and invited. I think the main reason is that there is generalized view that corporations, especially large corporations in the United States, have come to have excessive political power, and their shareholders have grabbed too large a share of the pie at the expense of workers and consumers, and that the, this is part of a system that is not working well for many Americans, and that those political and social concerns have naturally led us, led many people to look at antitrust, which going back to the Sherman Act and 100 years ago, has been meant to be and looked to be a way of reining in corporate power. And the view in many quarters is that that has not been done adequately in recent decades. Josh? Yeah, I think that's, I think I'm largely in agreement on that. I mean, that's certainly, I think, a popular perception. And you've seen that perception manifest itself outside of antitrust, you know, Occupy Wall Street, not, you know, and, and other sorts of movements from time to time. But I certainly think that that's right. I think an interesting question is, you know, why antitrust in particular? And I think Carl hints at some of that. I mean, antitrust is a natural sort of a legal institution built for addressing the particular ills of corporate power where we see it where we see those ills manifested in a way that sort of people grab onto and are politically salient. I think one of the interesting things that's happened in terms of the antitrust debates is also that I think with public engagement with respect to what are viewed as ills associated with corporate power, a little bit different, right? So my day-to-day interaction with uh, social media today for an average consumer is probably different than the day-to-day interaction a consumer had with Standard Oil you know, a hundred or some years ago. And so I think you've got more engagement, more salience in politics than there used to be for the same set of issues. And so you get a scope of debate that uh, now includes institutions far outside the normal kind of academia and ABA antitrust lawyers and the like. And in many ways, I think that's a good thing. Well, the, as both of you know, the House Judiciary Committee is conducting an inquiry into the state of antitrust law with particular attention to digital markets. I think a report is, I'm not exactly sure when it's going to come out. I think it's expected to come out this summer, maybe as early as this month. 
And you both have joined with a group of, with other scholars, economists and lawyers in submitting comments to the committee, but the tenor of the two sets of comments is quite different. Carl, the comments you joined assert that economic research establishes that market power is now a serious problem, at least partly the result of inadequate antitrust laws and enforcement, and that, quote, any conclusion to the contrary reflects either an incomplete or incorrect understanding of economics and the economic literature from the last several decades, end quote. The comments that Josh joined disagree and reflect the view that the American economy, including the digital sector, is competitive, innovative, and serves consumers well. So let me start with Carl. First, obviously, the first question is, do we have a market power problem? And what is the evidence that supports that view? Thank you. Yes. So I should say, I think it's true for Josh as well. I don't necessarily endorse every single thing that's said in the statement, but I think, but I join the tenor of that statement. Otherwise, I wouldn't have signed it. That this is, um, that was sent to the House Judiciary Committee about a month ago. And the key issue there that you're raising is that I think is absolutely supported by the evidence is that market power has been increasing in the United States economy. Now, that's a broad statement. I didn't mention is it hospitals? Is it airlines? Is it brewing? You know, is it telecom? You know, I didn't say, the statement here doesn't get into particular sectors. There's some emphasis on digital because that's what the committee's expressed interest in. But the statement that I endorse is that I think the evidence shows, I think quite clearly, that market power has generally been increasing, if you have to generalize, again, in the United States economy. I don't think it's true, particularly in the retail sector, for example, and there are other markets where it's not true, but as a generalization. And I think there's a lot of evidence of that. I go through it in some detail in a paper I published in the Journal of Economic Perspectives last year. So I cite some of that evidence. The main evidence is, well, first off, what do we mean by market power? Price cost margins are a good thing to look at. Traditionally, industrial organization economists have looked at those margins as one measure of market power. And I don't mean not necessarily in a legal antitrust sense, but in an economic sense of having power over price. And margins have been increasing, we can argue about the magnitude of that and the variation across sectors. Also, profits have been increasing. The share of GDP, profits have been going up and labor share has been going down. And larger firms have been gaining ground generally in comparison with smaller firms. And some of that's due to efficiency. That's competition in action, but it does imply there's greater market power. That's what the evidence shows. So that's the building block for the view then that maybe that we need to be more vigilant in antitrust because market power has been increasing. And I take the statement that Josh signed as disputing that evidence, or at least not agreeing with the way we characterize it. Before we get to, before Josh responds, Carl, in 2017, you said similar things, similar evidence decreasing overall concentration in the economy. But at the time, you didn't think that it was an enormous problem, and also that it wasn't, antitrust was not the right way to address political power companies. You haven't said anything about political power companies now, except to the extent that it's one of the things motivating an interest, a popular interest. But has your thinking on the extent to which market power has increased, have you seen new trends, even from the time that you looked at in 2017? Or is it that you think the trends have gotten worse since you wrote in 2017? I think these are long-standing trends, and a lot of the evidence that I'm now citing is not from the last year or two. It's over a longer period of time. So I think when I'm talking about the evidence on market power, it's not just the last two years. If you're detecting some difference in tone between what I wrote in 2019 and 17, if we want to go there, 
I was focusing more into that. Well, I continue to believe that there is a fundamental problem with corruption in Washington, D.C. and with excessive political power of large corporations, particularly in the Trump administration. But it's not just that. It's Congress as well and broken campaign finance. But I continue to think antitrust should not be directly trying to solve those political problems. It's the wrong tool. It may indirectly solve them or solve is too strong help with those problems to the extent that we have a more competitive economy, firms have fewer rents to protect and less power or profits to use to protect them. But I'm consistently against using political power as a factor in an antitrust case. So, but it's fair to say that you you think that the problem antitrust issues, market power issues have been systematically getting worse. I think it's a nuanced answer, actually, Scott, but market power has been increasing, but in some cases, that reflects simply the success of large, efficient firms. And that's not a failure of competition. But in other cases, and now we have to get sector by sector, you know, in other cases, it is exclusionary conduct where the courts have have greatly shrunk the role of the Sherman Act, or it's mergers, horizontal mergers in particular, where I believe enforcement has been too lax. Well, let's obviously give Josh a chance, but let's also try to focus a little bit on the... Well, let's uh, not give him a chance. Let's, let's try to focus a little bit on the uh, digital sectors of the economy, since that's obviously an interest of ours at TPI, and it's also an interest of the House Judiciary Committee. But let, let me let Josh get a word in. Sure, sure. So I think, at least for now, I think Carl and I are going to agree more, more than maybe Carl thinks we are. Well, that's really why we brought you together. together. Right. Well, we'll find something to fight about, I'm sure. But I think in Carl's answer, we sort of hit on something that I think is, I want to sort of air out as an important thing to distinguish, right? Because the letter they submitted said something like, and I don't think Carl thinks this, but if he does, he can can say it here. Says, you know, anybody who disagrees with this doesn't understand economics or something like that. I think that's the quote I I read. Yeah. I was going to ask you. I disagree. And so maybe I don't understand economics. I think Carl does. And I think we disagree here. But I think one of the disagreements is tucked into Carl's answer. And I sort of want to pull it out because I think it's important. So the way that economists think about market power in terms of sort of, you know, increasing markups or something like that. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. And some have antitrust implications and some don't. Economists are really, I think, a mixed bag in the nomenclature they use to talk about distinguishing these concepts of the way economists think about, market, you know, price greater than marginal cost and monopoly power, ability to sort of change market conditions, right? So that's a distinction. So I don't have, um, I don't dispute the evidence that there are increasing markups over time for example, right? I think that's a real thing. I don't dispute that evidence at all. I do think that some of the really interesting stylized facts that are emerging out of the sort of papers that are coming up now, and not all of them find this, but just sort of to kind of pinpoint where I think some of the policy debate happens is you get some that show increases in broad sector level concentration, but decreases in sort of local product market concentration and increases in markups at the same time, right? And that can be for different reasons, right? That can be large, efficient firms winning, right? It can be for a lot, it can be antitrust problems too. But I think that is sort of where the rubber hits the road in terms of the policy debate. And that does read on digital markets too. And we see sort of big firms and big markups. But I think it's important, some of the policy responses to that evidence, and this is for sure not Carl's, but some of the signatories to that letter, the policy responses have been, let's react to the concentration data, the sector level concentration data, and 
revive the 1968 merger guidelines and do bright line rules about size. This is, you know, not something I would endorse. I don't think it's something Carl would endorse, but sort of some of the policy areas in that space, sort of big is bad in its own right. Let's throw out the nuance between any discussion we want to have about what reasons markups may increase or reasons concentration may increase. And some of them are antitrust issues and some of them are not. Throw them out. Sort of competition will measure with the number of firms on our fingers and that's it right? Antitrust, I think, is built when done right on playing in that nuance. Well, there are multiple reasons why you might have concentration go up or markups go up or what have you. Let's try to distinguish them. I think a lot of the current push to change modern antitrust isn't to add more nuance. It's to take nuance out and use proxies like firm size to get out of analyzing things on a case-by-case issue. And I think largely the tone of the letter that I signed on to was, you know, a lot of these ideas about presumptions based on size and there's pending legislation to do sort of exactly that are about reading out some of that nuance and economic analysis. And I don't think that's a good direction for antitrust institutions to head in, in digital markets or otherwise. That doesn't mean that in some of these markets, there aren't real antitrust problems. There are and there can be, and our minds can hold more than one idea at once. It can have large firms that are growing. You can have increasing markups. They can be for efficiency reasons in general, but firms can also commit antitrust violations. Maybe that was five ideas at once, right? But all of that can be true. And I guess what my sort of core belief is that modern antitrust institutions, while imperfect in lots of ways, in some ways with not enough enforcement, in some ways with too much, in my view, are capable of sort of addressing those problems. But there's a fundamental difference, I think, that's worth people understanding here between, I think, our two positions, Joss. I am calling for, and I'm not alone, stronger antitrust enforcement than we have had over the past 10, 20 years. And you are not. You have stood for weaker antitrust enforcement. And my view is that the evidence that I think you don't dispute in any way, I think, in any event, I think is clear of large firms taking a larger share of the economy for whatever reason. Entry barriers being high, scale economies, all those network effects becoming stronger, and the margins being higher and the profits being higher imply we should have a stricter role in horizontal merger enforcement, particularly when one looks at the the merger retrospective evidence that there have been problems associated with the number of mergers that that we're allowed to go through. I don't think you take that view, and I think, and certainly on the exclusionary conduct, you've been a voice for pulling back from enforcement, such as your decision, McWayne. I think that's a fair characterization, except a, cu- a couple of things, and out so I can sort of just frame the dispute okay. my own way instead of letting you do it for me. You just uh, say I the same thing, but just with a more positive tone now. <laughs> right. So, so stronger versus weaker is a framing I won't endorse because it adopts the presumption that more is always better, and that's not a view that I, I share. I have called for more criminal enforcement vocally for a long time, so it's not always less. But even that's just for individuals, not for corporations. Excuse me? I thought that you want the individuals to pay the price, but not the companies. You should go back and read the paper. Is that that not true? That's not true. It says holding constant corporate penalties after they had been increased and also increasing individual liability. It's sort of adding individual liability to the current corporate fines. So, Uh yeah. So, let's kind of the, so your letter, Carl, the one you signed on to, just as you just said, you know, points to overly lenient antitrust rules and I guess enforcement with respect to both mergers and monopolization as having contributed to the market power problem. 
So let's take each of these in turn. Let's start with mergers. First, I'll give you an easy question. Hopefully, you can all agree on. Do you support a moratorium on acquisitions in the tech sector as proposed by the chairman, by Chairman Cicilline? I do not. An absolute, you do not, yeah. Josh, do I need to? I also, I also, <laughs> okay, I also do not. All right. So the question is, are we allowing too many mergers? And both horizontal and vertical, and the question is, so Harl, I take it you think we are allowing too many mergers. And the question yeah. is, what, how should the standard be changed if you think it should be changed? Just to put it in context what I'm talking about, in the most recent Hart-Scott-Rodino report from the agency's fiscal 2018, there were 2,111 deals reported, 45 second requests, and a few dozen challenges. Okay, so you know the vast majority of deals go through without a second request and so forth. And when I talk about stricter horizontal merger enforcement, I'm talking about moving in a direction towards blocking more deals or challenging more deals or fixing more deals, not, you know, a moratorium on all 2,000 of, you know, whatever the current number would be. It's selectively moving in that direction. So, yes, that's what I'm, I think we should be doing now, including by reinvigorating the structural presumption that deals that substantially increase concentration, that it would be harder to rebut that for defendants, for merging companies. This has always been... Maybe this will take us into weeds of the structural presumption debate we don't want to do here, but I will say the following. I obviously disagree with the premise, but if what we want to do is, let's say Carl's premise, that there are a large number of anti-competitive deals that go through, and we can talk about the quota, the retrospective evidence, if you want. I mean, not much of it is post-2000. I think there are seven deals in the Quoka thing that are post-2000, and I would recommend readers go check out Mike Vita's response to it, which I think is sort of fairly good in pointing out what that shows and doesn't show. But the premise, Carl, that I meant was that there are lots of anti-competitive mergers going through that are being allowed to pass. But even if we were to accept that, I'm not convinced on the evidence. I'm all for doing more retrospectives and doing them in a serious way comparing agency predictions to the outcomes, which I think also will get us a better information about, you know, sort of agency performance and where we're drawing the line than some of what we're currently doing, which is something a lot of people have called for. And I think the agencies have always been fairly reluctant to provide that information for some risk aversion sort of policy setting reasons within the agencies. But even accepting the premise as true, the structural presumption seems to me a weird way to go about it. So the PNB Supreme Court precedent says post-merger share over 30 means you flip the burden, right? Most courts take that 30 to be a sort of an actual strict rule. Some take it to be a vague instruction that when concentration gets high, you flip the burden, right? But I think two thirds, about three quarters, uh, take the 30% as literal. One court case, one federal court case under the Clayton Act in the history of Clayton Act jurisprudence has a case successfully been defended. One horizontal section seven case has successfully been defended on the grounds of an efficiency defense. One ever, right? Heinz was, but it was reversed on appeal. So one has successfully defended. I'm not sure how much stronger you want to make the thing. I mean, up until a year ago, no firm had ever won in a Section 7 case on an efficiency defense. And all the plaintiff needs to do to flip the burden to the defendant is show a post-merger share of 30%. My own view, whatever one thinks about the retrospective data, think about what that presumption is saying conditional on observing a post-merger share of 30, I believe that the probability a merger is anti-competitive is greater than 50%. That's the legal proposition in PMB. I do not believe that to be true. I don't believe the economic evidence supports it. 
I don't know why we would want to emblazon a legal presumption that in economics we know isn't right or consistent with the evidence. I think what ought to happen is agencies, when they think they're anti-competitive mergers, ought to go to court and litigate. They win a lot of merger cases. They lose some merger cases. That the win rate's not 100% shouldn't give anybody heartburn. That's what happens in the development of case law. And if we need to give the agencies more budget to go challenge more cases and go into section seven and do it the right way, and in my view, the right way is without a presumption in this particular context, then expand their budgets. But it strikes me as a presumption where so far only one set of merging parties has ever prevailed in federal court. I don't know how much stronger you want to make the thing. I guess I would factually dispute what you just said, Josh. Seems to me there are quite a few cases where an entry defense comes The proposition in. was an efficiencies defense, and there is one. Well, that wasn't my proposition. I was talking about the structural presumption, and there are different ways to rebut it, not just efficiencies. Yeah, for people example, win. We agree people win, win on entry, for sure. For sure. Yeah, so entry is a good example where defendants have uh-huh. often won, even when it was a highly concentrating merger. I just testified, what, six months ago in the T Mobile Sprint merger which the New York and California and about a dozen other states challenged and the, lost that challenge. The judge ruled in favor of the defense. That's that the I one. think is an excellent example of how the antitrust law is in a bad place. Four to three merger. And in that case, I would say, Josh, the defense prevailed on a combination of factors, efficiency, entry, slash fix, which is dish, and alleged weakness or arguments about weakness of Sprint, the acquired company. So it's another dimension. So, so this was, in my view, did not honor the structural presumption that what the judge did in that case. And it's a good example of where I think we need to strengthen. In what way did it not? I mean, the structural presumption has always been rebuttable. Presumably, a win rate of less than 100% in litigated merger cases is still honoring the presumption. Like sometimes defendants have evidence too. And, and judges, I don't want to debate the particular, mer- I mean, judges get stuff right, they get it wrong sometimes, but the overall record is the agency goes to court in Section 7 cases and they win a lot more than they lose. Um, I mean, well, we're talking about overall win rates and I'm talking about a case that I testified in that I know in detail that is right. an example of where I think the structural presumption did not carry much weight with Judge Marrero. But and, you're talking uh, about changing I, the law for all cases, right? Um, not, just, not, not just one, right? We can look back and say one's an error or not an error, but the propositions that are in those letters wouldn't apply to one case, right? So I think why I'm talking about win rates is the proposed changes would apply to the universe. And so I'm looking at the, the, the universe. That, that seems fair to me. And I'm giving an example of how things are not in a good place, so we need to make changes. And you want any given example, you guess you don't want to talk about it, so you no, want to reject it. We can, so we can, so uh, what I mean by not honoring the structural presumption is add. the type of evidence that the judge accepted to rebut the presumption is, in my view, should not be sufficient. And it becomes a legal question. How do we change the law? Of course, Congress could do that. I'm not too hopeful that the courts are going to make changes. They move very, very slowly with the common law tradition, which is understandable and probably a good thing. That's why it seems like now we need legislation because the courts have been going in the wrong direction for decades. Let's let ask about the future where, you know, by definition, nobody can be right or wrong. So <laughs> we, yes. we, right, exactly. <laughs> so probably the government is going to be bringing big antitrust, big antitrust case against Google and maybe more this summer. We don't know the details mostly. Is that a case they should be pursuing? 
And I know it's hard to answer without knowing exactly what case it is they are pursuing. But what are your thoughts on Google? I think it's impossible to answer without knowing. <laughs> oh, what but come on! Bringing. I mean, <laughs> you gotta you gotta read the complaint to see what's in it, right? I mean, it's hard to tell until you see the complaints. I think it's it's uh, that's not just hard; it's it's impossible to evaluate the merits anyway. Okay. Let me ask another before we go on to the monopolization issue, which obviously we want to do. Let me just ask another merger-related question because it's something that comes up a lot in terms of people of uh, potential policy changes is the ability to challenge mergers, acquisitions of potential competitors, competitors, you know, firms that are not in the same market or are not actual competitors at the time, but people, some people think that they would be competitors if they remained independent firms. What do you guys think of that sort of a, and, I, and that I think would be a probably a fairly significant change from the current way things are done. What do you guys think of that? Well, I favor being tougher in this area for whether it's the agencies or the courts, but so let's say antitrust being tougher in this area. But but I might say at the same breath, it's a tricky area. It's very and the reason it's tricky is you have a lot like to take the tech area. You know, you could look at the acquisitions that the big tech companies have made over the last ten or fifteen years, people have, and you could say, Oh, you know, should Google not have bought YouTube or DoubleClick back when, or you could do something with Facebook or Amazon. And maybe there are particular deals that we think were anti-competitive. Okay, I don't want to get into specifics, but there are a lot of deals that are complementary, you know, that these companies acquire and they put in resources and they grow things. And so I think it's kind of a, an approach of saying, oh, a big tech company shouldn't be able to buy anybody because they've got all this power already. I wouldn't support that, you know, type of ban. And then in general, it's just very hard to, it's so hard to tell sometimes whether the companies will end up competing in the future. The FTC just was looking at a merger in the, in the DNA sequencing equipment area. It's a, a company called uh, Illumina. It was buying a company called Pacific Biosciences. I was the FTC's expert in that case. And, you know, the quest, the key factual question is, would they really be competing a lot in the future as they develop DNA sequencing machines? And so I think it's very hard to predict some of these where technology will go. When I say we should be tougher, I think if you have indications the companies are competing some or on a path they're likely to converge, and if the acquiring company or either of the companies has a substantial you know, market power or even a dominant position, I think we should be very skeptical of those mergers and really require the companies to show likely efficiencies. And not, well, as I think the law more now is more in the safe, well, the plaintiff, the government has to show they really are very likely to compete in the near future. And there are no other firms that look, you know, who are also likely to challenge the dominant firm, let's say. And that's a very demanding standard. I think the standards are too high, but I'm saying it's also a tricky area because it's so hard to predict where future technology will go. The FTC win that one, Carl? No, what happened actually was the Competition Markets Authority in the UK challenged the merger. So the companies dropped it. And so the FTC, and we never went to court in the United States. So should we, that, that which leads my, to my next question, should be, and that also leads to the second topic of monopolization cases, which the letter talks about. First of all, should we be going more in the direction of Europe, the European type of antitrust regime? Go ahead, Carl. You're, you're the first <laughs> to go, Carl. That's an example. Neither of us wants to go for that one. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, look, there's different aspects when you say Europe. One thing is the, the competition authority has a lot more power because they can, well, particularly now that they can potentially require changes in behavior, you know, even before they go to court, interim measures. That there's just, there's a lot of power there. 
Let me start out by saying, I mean, there, I think the letter that you signed, I recall, said was a, too few monopolization cases. I think there was a count of cases. I can't remember exactly what it was. And we should have more of them. Is that something that you would agree with? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think about the number of actual cases as a good metric of anything. I think the question is, where we draw the line? So, look, I think there are I'm probably I'm definitely less aggressive than some of the other people who signed that letter when you get to the this exclusionary conduct dimension. Horizontal mergers are more my lead issue rather than exclusionary conduct. I'll say that. But I think there are some areas where the courts have really cut back too much on enforcement here. The American Express case is a leading case, I think, is a disastrous opinion and an extremely poorly reasoned opinion by Thomas. The dissent by Breyer eviscerates what Thomas said. So that's one example. Another example would be the pay-for-delay area, the activist case where the court moved in the right direction, but it's been 20 years of struggle to stop a blatantly anti-competitive conduct, basically paying pharmaceutical companies, paying generics to keep them off the market. So it's just, we need to rebalance things there as well, but it's, um, we need to go, you know, we're not going to do that now, you know, dimension by dimension of exclusionary conduct. I think exclusive dealing has been treated too leniently, and Josh would be part of that with his McWayne dissent that I mentioned. So I'm generally in that direction, but I don't want to uh, move to Europe. I will gently remind Carl that the McWayne dissent means I lost and the FTC brought the case and won. So it can't possibly be that I'm part of making it too lenient. I do think that that was a bad trying. case. You can't I actually sure, can because you've made I, other things too lenient. I, I sure did. I sure, on this one. I sure did. I mean, the economic evidence in that case was that zero evidence was put forth on price or output and that the allegedly excluded rival grew at a faster rate after the exclusive dealing was imposed than before. Whatever one thinks about the evidence sufficient to do sort of make the prima facie case in an exclusive dealing case. I don't think that was it, but your mileage might view, vary on the value of economic evidence in these cases. Well, actually, economic evidence is very important. Just you seem to require slightly more in any case than is actually available. Last I dissented, Carl. I voted with the FTC majority in 94% of the cases. So maybe that evidence isn't consistent with your view either. Last one, I think that the letter that Josh signed on to doesn't have any proposals for reform. I'll mention a couple of them. And then one, you know, well, several of them are quite interesting. One is on the structure of antitrust enforcement, eliminating the inefficiencies created by the dual agency enforcement. I mean, obviously, one could get into other things. We have more than two agencies. We have two plus 50. But do you think, I mean, do you, do you think there should be, let's just stick to the federal level. Do you think there should be is competition a good thing in this, in this realm or not? Like, like Carl, there are some proposals in my letter that I believe in more than others. And, and so let me say this about the overlapping agency structure. I do think that there are issues there that where antitrust institutions could be approved. Some uh, signatories to my letter believe you ought to eliminate one agency and have all antitrust enforcement in one. Some think that should be the FTC. Some think it should be the DOJ. I do think nearly all believe that there are some fundamental issues with overlapping enforcement, one brought on by Section 5 in one agency and not the other. And so, for example, you get very disparate treatment. If you're an SEP holder and you're in the DOJ's jurisdiction right now, rather than the FTC, you live a very different life. And uh, hold aside, which is right or wrong, whatever, it's just very different rules applying. Or if you are uh, have a proposed acquisition involving IP rights and are in one versus the other. I tend to be a proponent of taking away 
administrative litigation from the FTC for merger enforcement. I think we ought to do, uh, the, we being the FTC, sorry, uh, whatever the DOJ does when they seek preliminary injunctions. That is largely but not exclusively the case now. And so I do think that there are important issues in terms of kind of divergence between standards between as between the two institutions. I think that is a problem. I have long thought that FCC review of antitrust of mergers on top of that is a, an additional uh, oftentimes friction that does more harm than good. So my own view is reform along these lines would be useful. I am not quite in the camp where I believe it is necessary to get completely divest one of the agencies of antitrust enforcement. But I can imagine a world in which you redivided, you know, you put DOD criminal, you move, you know, you move things around to reduce overlap and enhance repetition in industry and expertise as between the agencies that could make things more efficient. I think it's really, really a shame how bad uh, relations are now between the FTC and DOJ. You know, DOJ going in to court to try to on the side of Qualcomm. I testified for the FTC in Qualcomm, so I was involved in that case. To have the DOJ go into court and say the FTC got it wrong in, in, in a major antitrust intellectual property case is breathtaking, partly because the two agencies, also because the DOJ's arguments are nonsense here as they are in, some other, in a number of other, most of the areas, what Nakam Del Rahim's been saying about antitrust and intellectual property is specious. And I've got a paper with Mark Limley detailing that that's just coming out so that's really unfortunate. I think the role of the FTC, you know, there's a historical role that I, I wish they would step into more to do studies, to inform Congress and the public of problems, to engage in rulemaking where necessary. This is what Congress intended in 1914, and they really have not been pursuing it for decades. It's a shame. So there's a definite role for the commission there, but the overlapping enforcement is clearly a kludge. You know, I don't want to get rid of the FTC because they have some authorities, including this investigative you know, authorities that the DOJ doesn't have. Um, they have a broader remit through Section 5. But it's hard to get up and defend the kludgy system we have at the same time. Well, I assume we're all in agreement with one of the other recommendations of Josh, of the letter that Josh signed, which is to increase the role of economists. That's, that's not controversial, right? So long as they're right thinking. <laughs> Spelled with a W, right? <laughs> Very good. Let me let me give one final question, which is actually not a trivial question, but because it's a pop, it's an idea that's gained quite a bit of credence. I mean, in terms of the digital sectors, is that even enhanced antitrust is not enough, and we need a some sort of a digital regulatory agency, either within an existing agency or a new agency. What is your guys' view of that? I'll go first and just pause. I think we do need a digital regulator for a bunch of uh, topics that we just doesn't seem as well covered between the FCC or the FTC or anybody else. Some of the privacy issues, the information disorder issues that we need to address, cybersecurity issues, interconnection issues. So I think we really do need that. And the public, I think, is generally they're calling for that. Other countries are, are moving in that direction doesn't mean it's right, but I think we do need that. And I've said, said as much in writing. Now, I didn't say competition as such so much. I mean, the trouble is a lot of the issues we need to address are suitable for a regulator, but I'm not saying they should do necessarily merger review right. or other competition issues we need, but there are dimensions where we need a regulator. And then the question will be how broad is the remit? 
I mean, what's the organizing principle behind a digital regulator? I mean, saying a digital company just means it's the same as saying a company that works with pencils. I mean, is it, you know, is it that is it something about platforms? Is it that it's opened up a set of new issues that the, you know, that we just haven't really had to deal with before? Uh, you know, kind of what's the coherent theme besides these being digital companies? Right. So I think, you know, we, the starting point is who would be subject, what entities would be subject to regulation? So if there's that, there have been a number of reports that are trying to address this. I think this, the Competition Markets Authority is, you know, very thoughtful on many of these issues. And they're, they're Jason Furman, his report there for the UK, I think was helpful. I know you guys at, at TPI have been very close to this and, and contributing to this a lot. I tend to, th- I don't know, I don't have an exact definition, but it's something like large digital platforms that are, would be subject to the regulation. I understand there's always boundaries of regulatory scope, and that's not easy, but that's in a general role what I have in mind, not simply somebody who's a user of digital technologies or even a developer of them, but these large platforms that are used by a large number of consumers or marketplaces where there are a large number of businesses seem to be, that's how I would tentatively define the scope. So let me say, Dom, I think we found an area to disagree strongly. I mean, I think this is an awful idea. And one of the reasons I think it's an awful idea, three quarters of the areas of law that Carl mentioned that are sort of, you know, outside the privacy, cybersecurity, those sorts of areas are, there's vast authority in the FTC right now. In fact, on top of that authority, they also have virtually every large digital platform, or we can define it however one wants, but is either under order or under investigation by one or both competition authorities, a consumer protection authority, the FCC too has people. That we've got a lot of agencies with a lot of authority right now and ability to do a lot of things. I am not of the view that adding another regulator to specialize in what I believe is not a, a different methodology or it's just large firms that operate in digital space is not an organizing principle that sort of compels me to think that we get much beyond uh, more of a mess in the regulatory space, contradictory approaches to problems. I mean, the institutional development of the, the antitrust law for whatever Carl and I disagree about fights on some important margins of the right direction. I think the structure of the FTC in combining economists and lawyers and increasingly technologists that do both competition and consumer protection, sort of a nice set of complementary tools. It has a big mandate and lots of tools available to it, both in terms of monetary relief and equitable relief uh, to address these problems. Doesn't mean they've got everything, but I think we'd be much better off if we think that there are problems escaping the FCC, the FTC, and the DOJ, I think we'd be much better off sort of working at those problems inside the existing institutions than getting a new regulator whose job it is to set rules for firms because they are large and on the internet. Let me just be clear. I might be very happy if it was the FTC. I'm not saying we need a new regulator. I think we need stronger authorities and the Congress to tell the FTC, we really want you to work in this area. They have not been doing things. They've been not, just not. And, you know, people are clamoring for it. So uh, it's not that I want to create a new institution. The FTC would be a natural place to do it. Okay, well, we, I think this is a subject that is not going away. (laughs) It's going to be with us for quite a while. We have the the Judiciary Committee's report, which will come out soon. But even that, certainly that is not, is not going to be the end of it. It's going to be discussed for a long time. And you guys are both going to be, I'm sure, participants in that discussion. And 
we're delighted you could be with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.